We're continuing our study from last week on the salvation question, and uh, this time we're going to look at another question, and we're going to start, of course, with a little recap, um, and our theme scripture this week will be 1 Corinthians 15, 29. It says, if the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead. Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? And that's from the New Living Translation. And this was Paul explaining to the Corinthian church and talking about the necessity and the salvation uh, reason for baptism. But first, we just want to briefly review what we went over last week. Our question last week was taken from the book of Acts and also in, um, I believe, Acts 16. And we showed from Acts 2.38 that the answer to the question was repentance and baptism on our part and the infilling of the Holy Ghost on God's part. We showed that baptism was commanded by Jesus in Matthew 28.19. And we showed that every instant Every instant of new believers coming into the New Testament church was associated with baptism. And the scriptures are right there. Acts 8.12 um, was the baptism of, um, I believe, Samaria with Philip. 8.38 was the eunuch. Um, 9.18 was Paul being baptized by Ananias. And 1048 was Cornelius being baptized by um, Peter. Um, Acts 1615 was Paul baptizing Lydia. Acts 1633 was Paul baptizing the, the jailer. And Acts 188 was Paul baptizing Crispus, who was the chief of the synagogue and um, some other Corinthians. And in Acts chapter 19, 5, uh, the disciples of, of John were rebaptized by Paul. So in every instance where people came to faith, came to Jesus, came into the church, there was a baptism. We showed that the Bible speaks explicitly that baptism, baptism has a two, at least two salvation purposes. One, remissions of sins, which is called out explicitly in Acts 2.38. Acts 22.16 is where Paul is recalling his own baptism and where Ananias says, why are you tarrying? Arise and wash, get baptized and wash away your sins. And of course, 1 Peter 4.21. And for the second reason is for the resurrection of the dead and that's found in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Paul to the Colossians 2.12 and in our theme scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 and 29, we showed that since baptism is commanded by God, it is not a work of the flesh or a good work or a work of righteousness or a work of the law. It is a response. It is a response to belief and an action based on faith in obedience to God's command. And that is shown in Acts 8. 12 through 13, where belief was the precondition for baptism in Acts 8, 37, where the 
eunuch asks, what is the condition for my baptism or what doth hinder me? And Philip said, if thou believest, thou mayest be baptized. And also in Acts 18, 8, where Paul baptized Crispus, and that was the condition. It said, when they believed. So it shows that baptism is actually a work of faith, a work of faith. We also showed that Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9, was not including baptism in the works he was talking about, but he was speaking about the works of the law as he explicitly showed in um, Romans 2.15, Romans 9.32, Galatians 2.16, Galatians 3.2, Galatians 3.5, Galatians 3.10. In a few instances, he shortened it to just works. Or in Titus, he said works of righteousness. Um, but we showed also that he could not be talking about all works or baptism as a work, since his very next verse, Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created to do good works. Works that are commanded by God or prepared by God are not works of the flesh. We showed that Paul himself believed that baptism had a salvation purpose, and that's our theme scripture in this, in this week's lesson. 1 Corinthians 15, 29, he says, If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will somehow, someday rise again? What he's explaining is that baptism is for your resurrection. And we will go into much more depth in this week to touch on that and bring that forth. We showed that John the Baptist, one of the greatest prophets ever, according to Jesus, was still less than those in the kingdom of heaven. And we showed that the only difference being in the baptism Certainly John had faith in Christ. He said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, and he was a unique, a unique exception in that, showing that you need to fulfill John 3, 5 to enter the bride. That was the only difference is, was his baptism. His baptism was unto repentance, and Christ's baptism was unto the resurrection and to newness of life and into Christ. So that was last week's lesson. So let's dive into the question this week, why we stand in jeopardy every hour. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, uh, 29, and I'll read it again. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those that are who are dead? See, Paul here is implying that baptism has a purpose behind or beyond just a, a, a statement of faith, that it has a salvation purpose. Why do it? Unless the dead will someday rise again. So Paul's question in, in stating this is in response to the hypothetical statement, if the dead are not raised, then of course our baptism is in vain. He's saying that if, if, if you do not have a resurrection, then baptizing is useless. The point being that baptism is not useless. It's not just a statement of faith. It is clearly for a purpose. Baptism had a purpose beyond mere expression of faith. So now let's examine uh, some of the statements by critics 
regarding the necessity of baptism. So we're going to look at some of the things critics have said where uh, they believe or state that baptism has no salvation um, effect or is required. Let's read this. Now this commentator is commenting on John chapter 3, 3 and John chapter 3, 5, where Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the critic or the writer of this statement says this, when first considering this passage, it is important to note that nowhere in the context of the passage is baptism even mentioned. While baptism is mentioned later in this chapter, John 3, 22 and 30, that is in a totally different setting. And his reason for uh, disregarding it is because the setting is in Judea instead of Jerusalem and at a different time from the discussion with Nicodemus. That is not to say Nicodemus was unfamiliar with baptism. Well, of course he wasn't. The Jews pr practiced ritual baptism either from the Jewish practice of baptizing Gentile converts to Judaism or from John the Baptist's ministry. However, simply reading these verses in context would give one no reason, really, to assume Jesus was speaking of baptism unless one was looking to read into the passage a preconceived idea or theology. To automatically read baptism into this verse simply because it mentions water is unwarranted. I'm sorry to laugh, but this, as I put there, is utter nonsense. Of course, Jesus was speaking baptism by the water and the spirit. See, this is an example of a man's private interpretation. And of course, you can take any scripture and put your own spin of it. Of course, Jesus was speaking of baptism. Let's look in the very same book, just the next chapter, the what he was talking about. So the deceiver says, born of the water does not mean baptism. Well, let's see. Very next chapter, John chapter 3, verse 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And baptized, what does it mean? It means Jesus baptized people. Just as how Jesus prayed for people, Jesus delivered people, Jesus blessed the babies. Jesus taught and practiced baptism. Verse 23. And John also was baptizing in near to Salem. So it's not a spiritual baptism because John was not doing a spiritual baptism. And it says John also was baptizing. So the two things are the same because there was much water there. So Jesus was doing water baptisms just like John. Not spiritual baptisms, but water baptisms. And they came unto John, verse 26, and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan to whom thou bearest witness, that is Jesus, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. So the scripture is very clear that Jesus baptized people. And it is very clear that it was about baptism they were speaking. Now, the reason is this, although it doesn't say explicitly baptism, Jesus made the comment to Nicodemus, 
you are a teacher of the law and you do not know these things? Well, of course, what this means is that the born of the water and born of the spirit must have been found in the Old Testament. Of course, it is in Ezekiel 36. Jesus, the Bible says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and wash you and I will put a new spirit in your heart. Right there, right in scripture, the reference to being born again. So the, this critic obviously was speaking um, and putting a spin on his own private interpretation because no other uh, scholars in the early church or the early church fathers believed other than the obvious. You can research it and ask what the early church fathers taught, Origen, Tertullian, um, and it's in many other scriptures. In fact, as I showed last week, this doctrine of baptism not being necessary is only about 500 years old. For the first 1,500 years, the church taught water baptism was an essential part of salvation. Paul said, if I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that which was first, first delivered unto you, let him be accursed. And let's look at this because people try and separate uh, the baptism. So born of water here does not, it's not standing alone, but rather is inseparable with and spirit. Just as the way if you make a statement, it's raining cats and dogs, refers to the one rain. So this item is our bread and butter, refra refers to the mainstay main item. So let's explain what I mean by that. Let's take the two times where Jesus referenced this. In John 3, 3, Jesus says, Jesus answered him. And in John 3, 5, Jesus answered him because he repeated the statement except for the last um, verse. The next statement, John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say unto you. John 3, 5, truly, true, truly, I say unto you. What I'm showing is the equivalence of the two statements. John 3, 3, unless one is born again of the Spirit, John 3, sorry, born again, John 3, 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. So what I'm showing is that born again is the same as born of the water and the Spirit. So when you say born again, it's not just baptism. It's not just the Spirit. It's both. Because you can see that Jesus repeated the two statements, except for the last verse, to show that born again means born of water and the Spirit. So you're not totally born again unless you have done both. Unless you have done both. Because the preceding verses match. And so Jesus was showing the equivalency that born again means born of water and the Spirit. It's not just born of the Spirit. Born again is not just being born of the Spirit, it is both. Let's look at some more of the critics, because this is what we will need to be able to explain and deal with. Here's what the critic says. We should also not lose sight of the fact that when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, the ordinance of Christian baptism was not yet in effect. So they're saying because of that, he couldn't have been meaning baptism. Of course, the Jews had been practicing baptism all the way back from Moses. Let's read on. This important inconsistency in interpreting Scripture is seen when one asks those who believe baptism is required for salvation, why 
the thief on the cross did not need to be baptized to be saved. A common reply to that question is the thief on the cross was still under the old covenant and therefore not subject to this baptism. He was saved just like anyone else under the old covenant. So in essence, the, the same people who say the thief did not need to be baptized because he was under the old covenant will use John 3, 5 as proof that baptism is necessary. Notice now, he just said before that John 3, 5 was not about baptism, but now he's using it as proof that baptism is necessary for salvation. They insist that Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he must be baptized to be saved, even though he too was under the old covenant. Here's their question. If the thief on the cross was saved without being baptized because he was under the old covenant, why would Jesus tell Nicodemus, who was also under the old covenant, that he needed to be baptized? Well, first of all, there's some inconsistent uh, going on here. First of all, he's now saying that John 3, 5 is about water baptism. But of course, Jesus didn't just say Nicodemus had to be baptized. He needed both the water and the spirit. Now, the difference between Nicodemus and the thief on the cross is for sure the thief on the, on the cross died the same day as Jesus. And Jesus gave him the promise before he died. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So yes, he did die under the old covenant. Now, Jesus did tell Nicodemus that to enter into the kingdom in the new covenant, you have to be born of the water and the spirit. But Nicodemus did not die under the old covenant. He outlived Jesus. Jesus gave him this just as he did the instructions to the disciples in Matthew 28 on what they should do when the new covenant came. Let's look at Nicodemus because there are historical records that talk about him. His full name was Nicodemus Ben-Gurion and was a wealthy Jewish man who lived in Jerusalem in the first century AD. He's written about in many other documents. He became a believer. In fact, he carried out what Jesus said because he lived into the new covenant. So again, what the critic was saying is that Jesus knew who he was talking to. So he is believed by most scholars to be the Nicodemus mentioned in the Gospel of John. So you can look it up. Elsewhere, he is discussed in the, the history of Josephus, of the Jewish wars, and he's found his name is found in rabbinic literature. And I, I didn't write all about him, but he was obviously a devout Christian. So again, the critics that say um, that Jesus was uh, talking to Nicodemus before the new covenant um, are wrong. Jesus knew that Nicodemus would go in to the new covenant. So let's go on. Nicodemus lived into the church age. We'll read another critical statement on the baptism and salvation. So they're saying, therefore, the water mentioned in this verse is not literal, physical water, but rather the living water. Jesus promised the woman at the well in John 4.10 and the people in Jerusalem in John 7.37 through 7.39. It is an inward purification and renewal produced by the Holy Spirit and brings forth spiritual life to a dead sinner. Now, the funny thing is here, he quotes the scripture where in the Old Testament, Jesus says, I will sprinkle you with water, literal water. 
and I will put a new spirit in your heart. He quotes, quotes that scripture. Jesus reinforces the truth in John 3, 7 when he restates that one must be born again and that this newness of life can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. So he is taking what Jesus said to Nicodemus and interpreting the spirit part to be the spirit, but to the water part not to be water, to be both spirit. And of course, again, this is purely a private interpretation. He is taking the scriptures and privately interpreting, sprinkling truth with deception. So let's look at another scripture that um, detractors of the salvation need of baptism usually bring up. Let's read it. It's in 1 Corinthians 1.17, where Paul is in the middle of a conversation, and he says this, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So what you have to do when you find a verse like that is you have to read the whole context. So let's go back a few verses and read the whole context. 1 Corinthians 1.11 For it hath been declared unto me of you brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? You understand what was happening here in the Corinthian church? People were boasting about who had baptized them as if that was the important part and not how they had been baptized. And this is why Paul said, I'm not caring about personally baptizing you because my main goal is sent to the Gentile world to preach the good news. And he goes on to say, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for, for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, they were all baptized in the name of Jesus. That's the point he's making. That's the point he's making. And so he's saying, listen, it's not important who baptizes you, but it is important how you were baptized. And he goes on to say, I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius. You find that in Acts chapter 18. So he did baptize people. So to use that to say that Paul was against uh, baptism where it wasn't necessary is ridiculous. He commanded the disciples of John in Acts 19 to be rebaptized. And here he acknowledges that he had baptized some of the leaders of the Corinthian church. But his main point was, lest any should say that I baptized in mine own name. He goes on to say, and I baptize also the household of Stephanus. No doubt that was the name of the jailer in Acts 16. I know not whether I baptized any other. He wasn't concerned with taking the credit for baptism. That's not his point. So people who use that, it's all about the context of what Paul was trying to state. Let's go through some other scriptures about the necessity of baptism. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew twenty-two eleven about a king who called a feast and invited his guests. Now in those days, uh, when you called a feast, a marriage ceremony, one of the things you did is you provided the wedding garment. Christ has provided the wedding garment. So we need to find out what is the wedding garment. 
And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is telling this parable? There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. What was the difference? He didn't have the wedding garment. He didn't have the wedding garment. It seems like a small thing, but Jesus is making to a point. So what is our wedding garment? Well, here's what Paul the Apostle wrote. Galatians 3.27 for, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Christ is our wedding garment through baptism. Romans 6.3 Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death? Jesus is the wedding garment. That's how you put on Christ is by baptism. Jesus is the wedding garment. Let's look at a few more scriptures. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness, in newness of life. Explicitly, the scripture says we are buried with him by baptism. That's scripture. That's not me spinning or interpreting. Therefore, the opposite is true. If you have not been baptized correctly, you have not been buried with him. That's just what the scripture says. Let's look at a modern translation. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? See, if you're not baptized into Christ, you are not related into his death. Therefore, you cannot be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's what Paul says. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order, here is the reason, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a newness of life. That means baptism is, it relates to Christ's death, identifies with the death of the flesh and the washing away of sins so that we too may live a new life. When we raise up out of the water, all our sins are forgiven. It's a new life. It's the born again. That's what Jesus was speaking. Now we have many illustrations in scripture that God put there, even in the New Testament, to show us the baptismal effect and that it is a salvation effect. 1 Corinthians 10.1, Paul, speaking to the same Corinthian church, said, Moreover, brethren, I would not that he should be ignorant how that all, everyone who came out of Egypt in Israel had to go through this way. Our fathers were under the cloud, which is a representation of the spirit baptism, and all passed through the sea representation of a water baptism and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea this God set up deliberately he could have taken them into the promised land without crossing the Red Sea and of course this 
symbol was repeated again after 40 years for those who had been born in the desert, who had never been baptized in the Red Sea. They were baptized in the Jordan to cross over into Canaan. So I want to show you as a final, or getting close to a final wrap up on this, is that many of the people who say baptism is necessary, they believe salvation comes at the point of faith. The moment you believe and confess Christ, you're saved. That's all it needs. That is all it needs. What I want to show you again is that that is not all it is needed because faith demands obedience to faith and action. Let's look at this. In Acts 18.25, we find the story of um, Apollos and Aquila. And it says, This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. That means he had faith in Christ already. He was preaching about Christ, but he only knew the baptism of John. Did they leave him alone and said, well, that's good enough there. You, 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 you have faith in Christ. You need no more. No. Paul, writing in 26, says, And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Well, what was missing? He only had the baptism of John. They had to explain to him the baptism of Jesus. They, so they didn't leave him alone and say, you're good to go because you already profess faith in Christ. You're already preaching faith in Christ. You've already been baptized, so it doesn't matter. No, they took him and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. The fact that people believe in Jesus and, or even claim to be Christians is not it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Jesus commanded certain things, and if we don't do his will, we can profess faith all we like. We can point to miracles. We can point to all kinds of great things, but he will say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. It's not professing faith. It's professing faith and acting on that faith. It's doing the will, the commands of the Father. Let's wrap this up a little bit with some of the reasoning and, and God's plan. We, we noticed at the crucifixion that when the soldier came to Jesus and he pierced his side, something unusual happened. It was not just blood that came out, but it was blood and water. Isn't that interesting? Two things, the blood and water. Symbolically, let's look at what they mean. John 19, 34, But one of the soldiers with the spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. Now, what is the sim symbolic uh, significance of the blood? Well, in Leviticus 17, 11, it tells us, For the life, and in the Hebrew, it's the word nephesh, which means soul, of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement. And again, the Hebrew is kafar, yom kippur, covering for your souls. For the blood that maketh an atonement, a covering for the soul. So the blood represents the covering for the soul or the, or the soul covering. What does the water represent? Well, that's easy. First John 5, 6. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. 
In other words, washing and the spirit, baptism in the spirit. And it is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. So God gave the blood as a covering for the soul and the baptism for the cleansing of the flesh. That is what God ordained. And to wrap it up, I will end with the fact that despite whatever one believes, there is no doubt that Jesus commanded this. Luke 24, 47, this is what he told, told the apostles, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And when we look up when they said remission of sins in Acts 2.38, it was with the baptism. Matthew 28.19, the great commission, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey or observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. I will pray that God gives us understanding and see that this is a vital core doctrine of the disciples of Jesus of the early church and is not something that we can uh, spin or change or deviate from. As Paul said, listen, if even if I come back, even an angel comes and tells you something different, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. So we have to hold fast. We have to continue steadfastly, as it says in Acts, in the apostles' doctrine, because that's the foundation of the church. In Revelation, when John saw the city, it had 12 foundations, which were the apostles. The church is built upon Jesus Christ and the foundation of the apostles' doctrine. We thank you for listening. I hope this has been a blessing. I hope you take these notes, study them for yourself, and come to the understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he has commanded that we be not just hearers, but doers of his will. We're going to close now by prayer. Father, we just thank you again one more time for your love and your grace. Help us to respond to that grace in faith by doing your will by observing the things that you have commanded of us to do. We thank you today for your awesome greatness and love. Lord, I pray for your blessing on everyone who is listening to my voice. Lord, I pray that their hearts will be edified and their minds open to your truth. We thank you again when we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.